Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club discussions and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today's episode features our book club discussion of Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford. Some think of Genghis Khan as a relentless, bloodthirsty barbarian on horseback, leading a ruthless band of nomadic warriors in the looting of the civilized world. Others consider him a visionary leader who triggered an unprecedented explosion of technologies, trade, and ideas. We delve into all of these possibilities in our fascinating discussion led by Bruce Christensen. This book club meeting was originally recorded on May 21st, 2023. Welcome everybody to The Good Book Club. I'm Rebecca Biblioteca. This is our May edition. We are on May 21st um, and we are really excited that everybody's here. We have a couple slides to go through to begin with and then we'll get to our presentation. So we're first going to have Book club member Tom, read our mission statement. We start out each of our meetings with our mission statement just to remember who we are and why we're meeting. Thank you. The Good Book Club mission statement. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we just deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering or yeah, new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Oh, thank you, Tom. That's excellent. I always joke that someday I'll make everybody uh, memorize that and repeat it, but that would get weird. <laughs> but I do love our mission statement. Um, we sometimes talk about things that we've done together as a book club. Those of us that are here in Utah sometimes get together and do some really cool things. We went on a field trip to look at Fremont Indian uh, petroglyphs and rock art with Dr. John Lundwell, who had given a presentation to the book club a while ago. You can find that on our The Good Book Club podcast and also on our YouTube channel. So that was really fun. Look at our faces. We had a great time and learned an awful lot that we never knew before about rock art. It was pretty amazing. So thank you, John. That was that was wonderful. Um, let's talk about a few upcoming events for everybody that we have. Um, I also helped John DeLynn run the Mormon Stories Book Club. We are reading Unexpected by Chris Thomas. He was the unofficial, well, he was the official um, media spokesperson during the entire Elizabeth Smart ordeal for the family. And so we can participate in this. There's no date yet, but we'll have him on a live stream for Mormon Stories Book Club. And I'm also going to grab him for our book club to come and give a little presentation. So if you guys want to read this, it's so good. We will have a chance to hear from him twice and those dates will be announced uh, sometime soon. So go grab Unexpected. Really good. Two other books that we're reading in the Mormon Stories Book Club with John DeLynn are Charisma Under Pressure, Joseph Smith, American Prophet, 1831 to 1839. This is a very long book. So it's kind of a back burner book, kind of read throughout the summer. And we'll be having a live stream with Diane Vogel that we can all participate in. Also, new book out, second part about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, Vengeance is Mine. 
This is the second part, Richard Turley and Barbara Jones Brown. We'll be live streaming with her too. So these are kind of back burner books for the summer uh, that you can read in addition to some of the other ones that we're reading. So it's always good to have too many books, right? Another thing I want to make people aware of, if you're here in Utah, this is a fundraising amazing evening with Bill Real. It's going to be on Alpine to in Alpine, Tuesday, May 30th, 7 p.m. Um, if you kind of Google that, you can find out where you can get tickets. It's a dinner. It's a Q&A. It's, it's going to be really, really cool with Bill Real, who a lot of you know, appreciate all of his podcasts and, and all the help that he's given to so many podcasters, including Mormonish, our podcast, um, to get up and going. So this will be fun to attend if you're here in Utah. Another thing coming up in Utah is Thrive Beyond Religion Women's Conference. It's going to be in Ogden at Weber State. I am going. I just got my tickets. I know several other book club members are going. We would love it if you guys would go. Um, message me, text me, let me know you're going to be there. Maybe we'll have a little uh, clicky book club group off in some corner, right? <laughs> anyway, it's going to be fun. And that's on Friday, June 2nd and Saturday, June 3rd. Which leads us into the next event, which is Pride here in Utah. The giant Pride Parade is on June 4th at 10 a.m. And our very own book club member, Bruce, is coming to town for those few days around Pride. And so we are going to get together with Bruce. We're looking at possibly a Saturday night um, out to dinner for sure meeting at Pride on June 4th at 10 a.m. We do have a book club banner to support Pride that we're going to kind of all congregate together. So again, if you're planning on attending, let one of us know so that we can coordinate where we're all going to meet and we can hang out there together. I think it's going to be a really wonderful day. And also, believe it or not, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, we vote on every book that we do. We're very democratic here at the Good Book Club. We begin by voting on categories that we would like to read about. And that changes. We're going into our fourth season and the categories kind of shift just as our interest um, kind of changes. So this is a Qualtrics survey that amazing book club member Spencer has put together for us. And it'll just help us kind of hone down on what categories we'd like to read. And then we'll start making suggestions for books and then we'll have rounds of voting on that so that we can read what you want to read because there's no fun in it if we're not reading what we want to read. So I'll be getting that link out through email and through Facebook and through Instagram. It only takes a few minutes. Just let us know what categories you're interested in covering in the coming year because our season goes August to August. So we're almost done with this year. Unbelievably, it goes so fast. All right, the next book that we're reading, um, we're back to our second Sunday, and this is going to be on Sunday, June 11th. We're going to be reading Brené Brown's Braving the Wilderness. We will have a little introduction of that book at the end of our presentation today, and our, our Rochelle Bedell is going to be our discussion leader, so this is going to be great. And now we're moving into our book today. So I don't know, many of you may know that I have a quirky, yeah, mute your mic. I have a quirky website called Trexmo for post-Mormon Star Trek fans. There are two things I know very well in life. That's Mormonism and Star Trek. And I found a way to join them together. I know. So we have this website. We literally have hundreds of post-Mormon themed uh, Star Trek memes. We're on Instagram and on Facebook. But I could not let this opportunity go uh, without putting this uh, slide up, which says we're reading Genghis Khan. <laughs> Hopefully a lot of you have seen that movie. It's a pretty popular one. So anyway, enough fun, but check out Trexmo. We will now move into our actual book club discussion. We are going to talk about Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world with our amazingly wonderful discussion leader, 
Bruce Christensen, take it away. Okay, hello everyone. Um, kind of going to why I'm a member of the book club is growing up, this is the worldview that I was taught. Um, there was a pre-existence, a mortal life, followed by living forever. The world is only 6,000 years old. Adam and Eve were the first humans. No death before Adam. The Garden of Eden was in Missouri and Native Americans were transplanted Jews. And now I don't think that. So the book club, the value of the book club for me is searching for better answers on how does the world work? What's my place in the world? And how do I lead a happy and fulfilling and successful life? So, you know, how does the world work? In, in the book club, you know, here's some of the books about history that we've read that is different than the narrative I was taught. So we read Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Who We Are and How We Got Here, David Reich, Sapiens, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, Who Wrote the Bible by Richard Friedman. 1491, Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus and the Blood of the Prophets. So we've been reading a lot about history. And this book, Genghis Khan, is kind of following in that uh, line of, of reading. And this was uh, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales written in 1395. This noble king was called Genghis Khan who in his time was of so great renown that there was nowhere in no region so excellent a lord of all things. So here, I'm just gonna kind of go over some highlights of Genghis Khan's life. He was born in 1162. So if we think about it, you know, the Roman empire had risen and fallen, you know, hundreds of years before. Attila the Hun from kind of the same area had conquered much of Asia centuries before. Uh, Alexander the Great had conquered uh, um, Asia Minor. And then when he died, that empire uh, splintered into the Ptolemies in Egypt and stuff. So this is um, a little bit after the Norman conquest of England in 1066. Um, he was born uh, near the Onan River in Mongolia, and he died at age 65 in 1222. So this is the Onan River where Temujin, that was his, his birth name, uh, was born. And I'm going like, oh, this seems pretty nice. Um, this is where Mongolia was at the time. And... Uh, Somewhere in that red circle along that river is where he was born. And you can kind of see the relative uh, capital cities now. There's very little written history. He didn't, um, the Mongols uh, until later didn't have writing. And he, there was a secret history compiled, but it was for the ruling family. It wasn't widely distributed. And then it was suppressed. Um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, some of it, you know, kind of came out, but a lot of the stories have been embellished, and I think that's how we have to look at all history. Um, in the book, they talk about Gurs, and they're also called yurts, and this is kind of the house, kind of a mobile house that the Mongols would 
build. They didn't weave cloth, but they had felt and skins. So this is kind of the Mongol step and modern Mongols putting up a gur. This is some pictures of modern gurs. And this is showing horses and camels and livestock were a big part of Mongol life back in the 11th century and currently. Um, this is a modern set of gurs and, and with the horsemen. And this, when I saw this picture, I'm going like, okay, this would have been in part some of Genghis Khan's upbringing, uh, would have learned how to ride. He wouldn't have been wearing blue jeans, but you know, um, a boy growing up on a horse. And these are some women, you'd notice that there's a camel and horses along there. So they did have uh, camels also. Okay, so early life of Temujin. His mother was a young girl that his father kidnapped shortly after she was married, a second wife. And so, you know, being a second wife and, you know, children of the second wife, kind of, you know, lower status. Um, the small clan that they were part of was subservient to larger clans. His father took him at the age of eight to search for a wife and they came upon a group and he befriended a girl from that group and the that group was amenable to him marrying her at a later time in life and her name was Borta after the trip to look for her for his wife uh, his father was poisoned and he was still very young and after his father's death his mother and family, so the first wife and all the children were abandoned by the group because they were too, too much burden. So his mother rallied them together to survive. Um, so the women were kind of strong in his life, um, but he was definitely, you know, a, a second class citizen. Um, when he just was a little bit older, he killed his older half brother, who was, as as we would term in Mormon speak, exercising unrighteous dominion. He was held for a slave as a time. He made a, a childhood friend, Jamaka, who later became a bitter enemy. And a few years later, when he was a bit older, he went back looking for his wife and she was still waiting for him. And as part of her dowry, he received a fur coat that he gave to a more powerful chief to then become part of that tribe or clan. And so he was currying favor with that dowry. Um, his wife was then later kidnapped and he went back and rescued her. So that was a significant uh, relationship in, in his life. So no images of Genghis Khan were made during his life. They and nothing was written. Each culture has depicted him as they envisioned him. So, for example, here is a 14th century portrait. Um, I believe the Chinese um, of what they thought Genghis Khan looked like. Here's a 16th century fiction a depiction of Borta and Genghis Khan in later life. Here's kind of 
a modern depiction. And here's where, you know, where history is kind of interesting when we really don't know much about what it looked like. And in our own culture, here we have, you know, Christian culture. Here's what the Catholics view um, Jesus as. And on the left, what how the Orthodox Jews or Orthodox Church views Jesus. And then we have the Black Jesus and the German Jesus. And then medical artists reveal what Jesus Christ looked like using forensic scientists. So that's kind of what they think with genetics and stuff that Jesus might have looked like. And then we have Mormon Jesus. And this is our concept of Jesus. But, well, I think I may have gotten this wrong. The last slide was actually Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And this is the correct Scandinavian Jesus from Mormon culture. So anybody got any comments? The first part of Genghis Khan's life and how we view history um, and stuff. So are you? Hold on. Rebecca's Bruce? Yes. Bruce, I would say, I think uh, the, the parallel I see is that when we don't have a written history and it's this old, uh, the legends start being made quickly and people start blowing things up. And um, I think we always just have to keep that in our rear view mirror, you know, keep it in our back pocket that, you know, we all know when we just tell a story, how we like to embellish it and everything. And so I loved all the pictures you did of Genghis Khan because, you know, people are doing the same thing then. Yeah, even just, you know, 150, 200 years after the founding of our culture, the stories have certainly changed from what actually went on. So, yeah, taking everything with a grain of salt. Um, Rebecca, you had a comment? Yeah, I was going to say um, kind of what Jackie was saying that, yes, the legends continue. I was going to point out that my own grandma, who was a children's author in the 40s, 50s, 60s, wrote a book, A Gift for Genghis Khan, which is a story about Genghis Khan and a little boy that gives him a, a gift. <laughs> and so it's true. He's definitely, since he's such an archetypal figure, he's something that everybody, someone that everybody wants to know more about. And I also have the observation, um, he seemed to have, he had such street smarts from the beginning beginning, which his background kind of explains that, right? He was basically an orphan. The idea of, of taking something that he gets like that coat and realizing, okay, this is valuable. What, what's more valuable is the connection I can make from this. And you see that throughout the rest of, of what he did. Just his, his political savvy was absolutely incredible. I was impressed by that. Okay, thank you. Lynette. Yeah, thanks. Um, one thing I thought about just going along the same idea of legends coming up is the legend about how when he was born, he was holding a blood clot in his hand and how, you know, maybe that was supposed to explain why he became such a famous person and was so powerful and how with many other people in history, we have these things. Oh, we go back and look at their life and say, oh, this happened when they were young. And so that meant that they were going to be famous or important in some way. And I'm sure we have a lot of those in, in Mormon history too. Yeah. Landon. 
Yeah, I am. Uh, I have to admit, I, I I thought Mormons were the only ones who really whitewashed their history, but boy, the the whole story of Genghis Khan has been whitewashed from history. I I, I was a military officer. I went through four years of ROTC and multiple years in the military, and I never studied Genghis Khan. I had no idea Genghis Khan ruled half the known world at one point. Uh, he was a military genius, as I look at it. Uh, I would rank him number one in the world uh, when you look at, you know, most of the guys who have conquered, they came from wealth and royalty and already had armies and then went out. This guy went from absolute nothing and, and conquered the world with no army, really, and just People on horseback, they didn't even have capital cities. They didn't have wealth. You know, they ended up with wealth, but they didn't produce anything. They didn't protect anything. It was all administrative and what they were able to, to conquer, but they were able to hold it even without large armies holding them in place. Uh, to me, I, I learned so much about this man. I, I had no idea what a military genius he was. And not that that makes you a great person, because I think a lot of times the we, we make heroes out of the world conquerors and they're your ruthless, brutal people. And I don't think Genghis Khan was much different, but uh, boy, I, I had no idea. Let me just say that until I read this book. Yeah. Now our next part, I'm going to go, I'm going to start screen sharing again. Um, let's see. Um, is kind of some of the, oops, some of the things he did. Okay. So this was Mongolia before the empire in, in 1200. So then here's, he first went and was going to kind of conquer the local Mongol tribes. And so the little blue circle I've drawn there is roughly where his, his tribe and his first uh, um, influence was. And I, in the, red circle down at the bottom are the Uyghurs. That keeps coming up in Chinese um, politics now. The Uyghurs were Muslim and the Uyghurs have been there for, you know, at least a thousand years and, you know, are still being problematic for the control that the Chinese government wants to have. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but this Mongol empire, you can see the different, uh, tribes and stuff and and he uh he conquered all of these and when he started mongol tribes fought and raided their neighbors and they raided the men when they raided the men would flee and the raiding tribe would take their goods and their women but the men, you know, would would run away so then they could come back and regroup. And then there was revenge and they would, you know, raid the other tribes. And it was back and forth. Um, and a lot of the more powerful tribes kept demanding allegiance from the smaller ones. And they also kept the smaller ones fighting among themselves. So they didn't fight against the larger, more powerful tribes. And there was a real distinction with the Mongols between the hunters and the herders. Temujin was from the less well-off hunter group. The herders had more livestock, had more, um, you know, they had sheep and animals to, to butcher where the hunters 
often, you know, shot small game down to rats and, and stuff like that. So there was a social class distinction between the hunters and the herders. But he saw how the tribes fought against each other and the more powerful tribes worked to keep the less powerful tribes fighting so they wouldn't threaten uh, the more powerful tribes. And that also went on with the more powerful um, people outside of Mongolia, keeping the Mongols just kind of fighting among themselves so they weren't a problem. So when Genghis Khan conquered adjacent tribes, and this started very slowly, it, it took him till he was age 50 to conquer all of Mongolia, which, you know, was a fairly old age at that time. But he integrated the leaders of the conquer group, conquered groups into his own power structure. He, he would give, give them places in his organization, creating the larger us. And then he did fictive kinship where he integrated the outsiders and the conquered enemies into his clan. Um, for example, he would have his mother adopt children of the nobles of the conquered and raised in his mother's household. And later on, some of these children were the leaders of the Mongols. Um, and so as opposed to just fighting amongst the little bands he came up with the idea of integrating the power structure and he dismantled the traditional power structure of inherited aristocratic power and replaced it with the power structure of personal loyalty and ability and i think that landon is what militarily was his genius at that time um he also took care to provide for the families of fallen soldiers, which engendered loyalty. He divided the spoils of conquest among the warriors, though later on when he started conquering um, the outside world, they would bring back the spoils of conquest and they would just have to keep it in large hordes because they had so much that they didn't even know what to do with it. But this showing this loyalty to his generals, they reciprocated with extreme loyalty to Temujin. But if you fought against him, you were killed. And now, again, he adopted children from conquered tribes, tribes raised them within their families, marriages. Oh, I, that's a duplicate slide. Okay, here we go. Similarities to Mormonism. When I was reading this, I'm going like, oh, this sounds familiar. Fictive kinships adopting the tribes of Israel, you know, where Ephraim, and adopting and sealing people to Joseph Smith, creating a larger in-power family. Um, in Mormon culture, it's been called dynastic marriages. Marrying leaders, children, and wives. He approached uh, Heber C. Kimball for, to marry his wife, Violet Kimball, but then, you know, said, no, I'm only joking, and then married their 14-year-old daughter, Helen Mar Kimball. Polyandry, um, when Joseph Smith sent Orson Hyde to dedicate the Holy Land, he married Miranda Hyde and stuff. And then members were either with Joseph Smith or they were excommunicated. So when 
I saw this strategy that Genghis Khan used. I'm going like, oh, this is kind of what early Mormonism was. Um, and then also, um, let's see, did I? Okay, no. I did. I went by this slide too fast. Some of his um, reforms were reforming the Mongol army into squads of 10 made up of members of different tribes. The loyalty was to the squad and not their former tribe. So 10 squads of 10 formed a company, 10 companies formed a battalion and 10 battalion formed an army. And in later life, you know, his, his uh, mother had an army, his sons had different armies of these 10,000. But this organization broke the power of the old system of lineages, creating the greater Mongol army and nation. And now, so that getting back to um, similarities of early Mormonism, as soon as I heard or I read about organizing people with people from different groups into an organization, it reminded me of wards that were by geography and not where you want to go to church. It eliminates popular congregations like many churches have, and you socialize and provide service within your ward or within your group. And I was just reading on Reddit about some of the ward boundary changes that are going on with you know, the reported shrinking of the Mormon church and people lamenting that they would lose their friends in their former ward because then they had to be, you know, friends with the people in the new ward. Nobody had moved and no friendships had changed. So here again, let's let's open for some comments and um, and see what you know people think. Those are my observations about um, kind of reorganizing things, fictive kinships. Or reorganizing the army so that it blurred the tribal lines and it kind of did that with religion with us rebecca yeah i thought that was a very interesting part of that and i can see that in two ways i can see that when you take people from different backgrounds and different allegiances and put them together that they can learn to work together and learn more about each other and form a more cohesive group however it also reminded me a lot well of course of early church history but even more recently um it's kind of a tactic that the flds use and warren jeffs where you completely disband families some children from one family are raised by another that there's he came out and said no one's married anymore you know you basically can't have any other allegiance everything else is cut out the marital the family bond the allegiance is to the organization so you're really just completely at sea except for the only thing you can count on that ground you is this organization and that's a tactic to make sure that there aren't these alliances and allegiances you know because for most of us our family alliances and allegiances are much stronger than anything else that we could talk about maybe not the church when we were in but <laughs> but you know that so it's it's a really interesting psychological um, manipulation of people to make sure that the most strong allegiance is to this group in this case Genghis Khan. Landon, 
Yeah, I was going to say, I obviously, I don't think Joseph Smith studied the tactics of Genghis Khan and incorporated them into the church. Um, but it, it just goes to show that that these types of things work, uh, you know, across all humanity. And it seemed to work at no matter what civilization Genghis conquered, it seemed to, to somewhat work for him. And so, you know, sometimes what works, it worked for a ward. So it's you know, if it works, if it works for a nation, why wouldn't it work for a church? So I can certainly see why you would implement some of those. Uh, whereas other ones seem to be kind of manipulative, uh, you know, uh, and, and so in cases, I, I think they could be seen as either or. It could be manipulative. It could just be something that works. I think in the case of Genghis, it worked to put to, to put warring clans and make them work together so that they're now not warring anymore. And I think we see that in the United States now with the different races and integration of, of uh, different races in school and in in work and in the military and and you know that that helps to uh, eventually unite you so you accept other people so I, I think there's pluses and minuses to both of these but it's it, uh, you know the thing that I learned I, I guess from Genghis Khan's thing is almost the church could almost use those tactics today to where you don't need this overwhelming hierarchy in salt lake we you know they, they joseph smith said i teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves and yet they have complete control over everything from salt lake there is no governing of yourselves but genghis khan seemed to be able to let each country you know regulate itself with just a minimum of troops that he had to keep in the countries to do it and i think with wards and stakes and inspiration that you'd almost see the church going more towards that kind of distributed leadership rather than this hierarchical leadership. But uh, then again, it all comes back to power. So I, I really looked at those two structures and tried to compare them and, and, and see what was the motivation for why you'd use one versus the other. So I don't know that I came to a firm conclusion, but it, it was interesting to compare and contrast. Yeah. Thank you, Landon. Jeffrey. Yeah, it's my first uh, book group, but uh, enjoying the conversation so far. Uh, one one uh, thought that I had is that, you know, Genghis Khan decided to change the rules along the way. So he kills his older half brother and, uh, you know, ends up uh, fighting a former ally. I think that's very common for charismatic leaders like Joseph Smith. He's changing all the rules along the way. And then, you know, they didn't really talk about it in the secret histories, but my guess is that, uh, Genghis was telling people the God of the eternal blue sky was telling him it's okay for him to transgress these particular rules because it's the thing they have to do. And that's what's scary about these very large, powerful leaders is they basically create laws unto themselves. So, you, you know, the and you see that all in the Old Testament, you know, some degree in the New Testament, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Book of Mormon is mostly fiction, uh, if not all of it, but the you have that. Uh, uh, lots of stories there, like, uh, you know, Nephi is told he can cut off Laban's head, and then Genghis Khan is doing the same thing. The, yeah. the, the other point is the contextualization. One of the points I thought was striking is that uh, they, the Mongols asserted that they were descended from the Huns. Uh, yeah. And from the Western perspective, the Huns were considered to be this savage, barbaric, terrible uh, plague on Western Europe. But from Khan's perspective, they were a great group. And, I, and, you know, I think that those of us, at least myself, until I started reading widely, 
you know, we, we always have this Western view, like everything in the West is the right thing and everybody else is barbaric. It's very interesting to see that inverted where they're looking the other direction. And I think that comes through as well. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, one of the things I recall about the Roman Empire is they used Roman citizenship as kind of the carrot to unite people. So people that were favored became Roman citizens and you had a lot more um, benefits from that. And, and being loyal to Genghis Khan got you those same benefits. So yeah, leaders over the year, I don't believe anybody invented any of this it may be just you know strategic tactical stuff that works and different people have uh, have discovered it so i'm going to go back to sharing here and okay in the in the book there was a lot of talk about spirit banners and so here's two recreations of the spirit banner a warrior planted the spirit banner outside the interest to proclaim his identity and as his perpetual guardian the spirit banner was believed to house the person's soul genghis khan um, had two spirit banners one made from his white horses and one made from his black horses the white horse one was lost to history the black one was held until very recently when the Soviet Union killed the monks that were keeping it and it's kind of disappeared from history. It may be, it may be gone. It may have been destroyed, but the Soviet Union was always worried about the concept of Genghis Khan because uh, Mongolia was one of their uh, client states within the Soviet Union, and they were always afraid that people would rise up under the banner of Genghis Khan. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And here's some pictures of, um, you know, modern spirit banners outside of more modern Gur and stuff. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. I envisioned them a little smaller and and. I'm like, yeah, that's that's very interesting. So this is Mongolia in 20, uh, 1206 when Mongolia was united under Genghis Khan. So you can see the map of the world. So then during his first 50 years, he conquered and consolidated power over the Mongol tribes. But once that was complete, he needed purpose you know the the family started you know fighting amongst themselves so they needed you know like some place to go and and fight to have a purpose so he started conquering adjacent powers and um the mongols were really good about conquering people for their wealth their power and their knowledge and they integrated all of that Again, like Landon mentioned, they didn't produce things. They didn't, um, they didn't build cities and stuff, but they did transfer power, wealth, and knowledge um, among their controlled groups. And so, in 1219, Mongolia is starting to expand into a little bit of what 
now is northern China and up to the border of what is now North Korea. And then in 1223, it's expanding further. And in 1227, this is what the Mongol Empire looked like um, at the time of Genghis Khan's death. So it went to the Pacific Ocean and to the, um, I guess that's the Caspian Sea. Um, you know, it was, they conquered part of Afghanistan, all of the, what we would call the stands now, uh, Northern China, part of Northern India, uh, part of what's now Northern uh, Afghanistan um, and stuff. So this was when he died. And he, he died at a ripe old age of 65 in his own gur. You know, they kept the Mongol lifestyle going. Even um, when the Mongols took over China and built Beijing, the Forbidden City, inside the Forbidden City, the Mongol leaders lived like Mongols in their gurs. And that's why it was kind of a cordoned off area. But then there's a little more expansion by his descendants in 1237. 1259, you can see they've gone into Europe um, and, and Turkey and all of Iran, part of Iraq, uh, part of now what is uh, Pakistan, all the way down to the north part of Indochina, all of Korea. And then in 1279, I've just, you know, highlighted uh, Russia, Ukraine, they conquered the Russian, you know, noble little states and stuff and kind of consolidated Russia into what it is. And then we can see now they were in charge of Ukraine and we've got the current Russia-Ukraine problem. They had conquered all of Korea and all of China. And then um, after his death, then it starts to fragment among his descendants and their um, controlling empires that weren't as big as Genghis Khan. It's like with Alexander the Great, as soon as he died, his generals and stuff divided up his empire to make their own empires. And Genghis Khan's family kept control for about 150 years. And then, um, you know, it started fragmenting. So there's an interesting part. Okay, this map here is of modern Iran. And there's this area that was an Islamic area, the Nazari Islami state. And it's where we get the term assassins they apparently killed people politically a lot and i thought it was interesting their imam was chosen of god he was infallible he had no education everything he did was inspired by god his followers accepted frequent irrational acts and frequent changes to the law the reversal of the most sacred precepts equals God's plan for humanity. And I'm going like, oh, I have heard this before. Okay, so yeah. Let's, yeah. So here, this is what I thought, similarities with the Nazari or the assassins. 
leaders chosen by God. He's infallible. Everything a leader leaders do is inspired by God, asked to accept frequent changes to the law and teachings and reversal of the of most sacred precepts and God's plan for humanity. And so um, let's see. Yeah, this was supposed to be another comment. So let's uh I just thought that was really interesting. You know, that playbook has been played out in our lives a bit. So Jackie. Yes, uh, this is kind of going back to uh, the Soviets. That was just such an aha moment to me that um, they came in so strongly and just took down every bit of Genghis Khan and his memory that they could. It was brutal. And I mean, they're hacking people to death. And I think it's a real key to understand how strong belief is. And we can go back to Jonathan Haidt and belief is strong. And, you know, they, the Soviet Union was classic for trying to take out all religion. They're assimilating people. They're moving Russian people into all the stands so that you start speaking Russian. They did everything in their power to take out these tribal religions, cultures, and it doesn't work. And um, I also realized after reading this, the aha moment for me is why there's such a, uh, a historic kind of friendship alliance between China and Russia now, is they all come out of this common history of Genghis Khan. I thought China and Russia just kind of allied because they're on this, you know, they share the continent and, um, you know, pull together and work with resources. But there is this commonality with Genghis Khan, and that unites them to this day. I mean, we're seeing that now. You know, G7 just asked China to to try to talk uh, and work to influence to, to get peace with Ukraine. So uh, the hooks run deep, and they're long, long, long entrenched in history, in our culture, in our DNA. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting because in in the culture that we grew up in, there's a concept of, you know, um, well, it, it's more now, you know, in general conference, they started saying, well, don't listen to and say what the previous leaders did, just listen to the current leader. And I'm just going like, boy, does that sound familiar? That that's a tactic of control. Um, that you know we see being exercised in our own modern culture here. That was being used in other places. This was just a little part of Iran, and you know the leadership there was saying, you know, perfect. Anything we say is God's will. Yeah, just kind of it, it's it's very interesting how how that works. Uh, I think throughout history is if you can convince people that you know God is telling you what to do, you know you've got the Mormon fundamentalists, Warren Jeffs, and um, the LeBarons and the AUB. And then you've got, you know, David Koresh, Jim Jones, you know, trying to keep control of a group and you see these tactics. So a lot of 
what we've discussed in the book club, I find really interesting, helping me give a get a better perspective. One of the perspectives, I read this book, I think when it came out in 2004, and one of the think, overriding concepts, I'm going like, okay, I could have been born on the Mongol steppe and been just swept up and killed by Genghis Khan's armies. You know, I could have had a family and stuff, and I was unimportant. You know, I could have been one of the people that they threw in the ditches as they were storming, you know, some of the tribes that had cities and stuff. And then I'm going like, okay, well, I'm 66 years old. And by, I think, the total luck of the draw, I've lived a long time. I've lived a very comfortable, healthy life. And it, by the luck of the draw, it could have been very different. And there's been billions of people that had very different and worse lives than I've had. And then I'm going like, okay, well, I've got possibly a quarter of my life left. I better think it's pretty, pretty amazing and great because, um, you know, I've got what I've got. And then it goes back to uh, Sam Harris's book, Free Will. You know, what kind of free will did anybody have on the Mongol steppe? They had, you know, the, the warring clans and, you know, women were stolen and, you know, back and forth. You know, free will, you know, in Mormon culture, we're taught, oh, everything is our fault because we're making all of the choices stuff so i just thought that that was really interesting that it gave me a wider perspective beyond the eurocentric and mormon fiction narrative of the americas stuff so those are just some of my thoughts on let's go back to screen sharing here Okay. Okay. Let's go over some of the accomplishments of Genghis Khan. He changed warfare, you know, a light army. He learned how to defeat walled cities. Uh, army traveled long distances. He used psychological warfare to get cities to surrender. Now, I believe all these things had have been used in different times and places, but he kind of put them together at the right time to be able to take over um, the world as he knew it, which ended up being a large part of the world. He also had, I think, was a really great method is he allowed religious freedom as long as they submitted to the power of the empire. So he had Christians and he had Christians in his family because some of the wives of that he had and that his children had were from conquered Christian nations and Islamic nations. Um, he conquered an area the size of Africa. They also gave the example, it was the same area as North North America, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, plus Central America and the Caribbean. Uh, he united the Slavic, small Slavic tribes into what is now the Russian state. 
he smashed the old feudal system of aristocratic privilege and birth and created a system based on individual merit, loyalty, and achievement. And one thing, he didn't hoard wealth. He put it back into civilization. So when he conquered areas, he kind of used the, the wealth, you know, distributed it to his armies. And he was very instrumental in facilitating the improvement of um, the Silk Road and the trade. Um, he also instituted the rule of law that even leaders were subject to. So I think that was, you know, um, a little different than, you know, like the divine right of kings that was, was going on in Europe. He created diplomatic immunity for ambassadors and envoys, even from groups that he was at war with. And I think that was interesting. And he developed a postal system for communication, which, you know, as his empire grew, he had to communicate across a, a you know, very large area, but he also supported merchants and trade and the Silk Road, which was in existence when he was just up in Mongolia, but they didn't have access to much of the trade goods from the Silk Road unless they, you know, stole stuff from some of the tribes that were closer to the Silk Road. And one of the biggest things is uh, European knowledge of the world expanded by ambassadors and merchants. And it's kind of attributing some of the setting up of the European Renaissance is having the knowledge from the Islamic world and China and stuff available to the Europeans. And then in you know the 1400s and 1500s, we have the Renaissance. Okay, the not good stuff. There's wide estimates between 30 and 80 million people. So I just did 50 million-ish people were killed by the Mongol Empire. That's a lot. Mesopotamia, which is pretty much Iraq, was depopulated and turned into pasture. And they think that the Black Death traveled the Silk Road to Europe. And, you know, at times a third of Europe died with the Black Death. So, you know, there's a kind of a, a romantic narrative of Genghis Khan, but there was a lot of negative stuff as with every empire. But I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. Um, he did change the world and he changed the world and that change is still being felt today. So this is kind of how it divided up, but you can see from this map, you know, you can see on the um, East, Korea, all of China, what is current Mongolia, much of Russia, but it goes to, you know, the Ukraine, Eastern Europe, uh, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, all that stuff was, under his family's control as it kind of split up. And this is a, a map of 
the successor states to the Mongol Empire in 1335. So, you know, the Chinese and just the Golden Horde, which was much of Russia, Georgia, um, in Arabia, the the Bedouin tribes, and and so it was a big part of the world. There was even forays into trying to conquer Japan and things like that. And so this is the last of Genghis Khan's ruling descendants, Muhammad, Muhammad Alim Khan. He was the emirate of Bukhara in Central Asia, which is now Uzbekistan. This picture was done in black and white and they colorized it with co new computer technology. He was deposed by the Soviet army in 1920, he fled to Afghanistan, and it was very interesting. His daughter was a journalist while she grew up in Afghanistan, and she was later moved to the U.S., and she had a very long career with the Voice of America. She's currently 79 years old and lives in Washington, D.C. So this guy was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, and he ruled part of Central Asia until 1920. Um, the author also mentions that the Indian uh, Mughal emperors were, some of them were uh, put to death and their families were put to death that they ruled part of India and that they were put to death by England and stuff. So I just thought that was very interesting that, you know, there are people who, um, our direct descendants from Genghis Khan. Now, I did look into the, you know, stories I've seen related to genealogy that large percentages of um, Asian people are descended from Genghis Khan, but there's some disagreement as to which Hoplo group and, and stuff like that. But I think he had a big, uh, a big influence. He did have multiple wives once he started conquering other areas. But his primary wife, Borta, was the one that um, bore most of the children that became um, leaders and successors to Genghis Khan. But I, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And then with that, it came to mind, okay, you know, what percentage of people in Utah and the U.S. are descendants from Brigham Young? And in the ex-Mormon community in L.A., we've gotten together for years and the number of people who are descended from Parley P. Pratt is amazing. Cause every time we have a gathering, they're going like, oh yeah, I'm a descendant of Parley P. Pratt. So I thought that was interesting. So let's have some, you know, just general comments here on, you know, what, what are some of the things you guys thought of as you were reading the book? Jackie. Uh, one of my biggest takeaways that I so appreciated from this book is, you know, it's, it's the precursor to the Silk Road and information is moving back and forth across all of Asia into Europe. He's smart enough to pick the smartest guys, the astrologers. Um, they're sharing information. He's not losing the people who, you know, our intellectual who know have the knowledge he's using their knowledge he's moving them around he's grabbing these people from india china if they're smart and intellectual he brings them to him and it just goes to show history rhymes and you know when we're open and we're trading and we're using different ideas 
it seems like, you know, we prosper, the world progresses. And then like, as we know in the book, when the bubonic plague hits and the massive fear that comes from that, everybody goes back to their tribes, back to, you know, put the walls up, don't interact. Everybody's an enemy. And I think we feel that today as, you know, there's our fundamental religious groups, you know, there's this enemy out there. Intellectualism is bad. And I just appreciated the book for the importance of information to move back and forth freely. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Jackie. Thank you. Landon. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I really enjoyed the story about uh, how he uh, tolerated all religions and the, specifically the story where he brought the, the different religions into his court and then let them debate. And, and it was kind of funny to see all the religionists when they didn't have the power of the state behind them to make an argument. And they basically had to go out there and make an argument. And uh, no one was there to protect them. The argument had to stand for itself. And they all ended up just singing to each other. Because <laughs> they couldn't get through a, a final state where anyone could win on an argument of religion. But it was it was interesting to see the tolerance that he gave and to see how how religion really interacts when it's given a le level kill and has to compete against itself for rationality. Yeah, no, I, I found that that interesting. And, and Kublai Khan, his grandson that took over China, uh, you know, asked the Pope for a hundred scholars to be sent to China to understand Christianity and that trade of educated people. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that he, didn't tax um, scholars, doctors, lawyers, lawyers, I don't know, but you know, the intellectuals because he was trying to encourage it. And yes, um, I don't, this is going to sound like a downer. I'm really gr glad that I read this book because somehow I just grew up not wanting to know about Genghis Khan because there was such a negativity about it. And sometimes you just have to push yourself and expand your horizons a little bit. So I really learned a lot from this book. But for some reason, um, I didn't, I I didn't hear the part about how many people were di died as a result of these this invasion. So I looked it up and went in Chapel Hill, and the number was estimated at forty million people. And I think that. We see now how war works and that people don't just die on the battlefield. They die because of migrations, of people trying to get away from war, of um, just various kinds of predations. It's not just battlefield deaths. And then we look at the ripples of death that occur from invasions of any kind. And to me, and I don't mean this to be too, too strong of a statement, but it probably is. It's like saying, you know, we look at the trade and all the wonderful things that came of um, some of these ideas that were uh, um, brought by Genghis Khan. But a thought came to my mind, and it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like saying Hitler invented the Volkswagen, so he brought something to the world, and. I just don't think it's worth it considering the negativity that came along with, with his actions. 
And um, I live in the Southwest, and there's this conversation going on about what happened amongst the cultures before uh, Europeans came to the Southwest. What was what was really going on? And we have sort of two theories. One is that war brought, brought all kinds of advancements, uh, roads, trade, and that sort of thing. But the other um, side of the question is, um, maybe war did not bring all these wonderful things to people. Maybe it was business. It was trade, people needing things from other people. And perhaps that's not such a fast uh, expansion of, of knowledge and goods as war brings, but it doesn't have all the negativity that that war does. If people can learn to make connections by trading instead of by stealing from each other, it's just a happier experience for everyone. So I just had to point out that the number of people who died, I don't think it's worth it. And I think that all these good things and ideas and goods that have been um, moved across the continent would have occurred anyway. And it's also in terms of people who say, thank goodness the Mormons came to Utah because, you know, they colonized Utah. And, you know, if you think that's a good thing, it would have happened anyway. The train would have come through anyway. People would have come through in a peaceful fashion. They didn't have to create an empire that keeps people out and keeps people in. So anyway, this is sort of my screed against war. But that said, I thought it was a great book. Great. Thanks, Anna. Landon. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about the book club is it opens your minds to so many different options. And, and I agree with Anne in that, uh, you know, it seems like all the most terrible people are the ones who end up writing history and, and uh, getting their names. You know, all, all the people who have things named after them seem to be the people who killed everybody. <laughs> um, uh, but right. uh, along the same, along the same line, though, you know, we looked at I, was it Pinker's book? Who, whose book was it that talked about empires and the need for empires and how uh, empires actually made lives better over time? And so you, you you look at two different views and you have to kind of say, you know, God, there aren't any easy answers. Uh, and and we also learned that worldview was so much different in the ancient world than it is in our world today, uh, because in the ancient world, there was a pie and it was a certain size and you had to divvy up that pie because there wasn't mass production. Uh, there was limited resources and limited things they could build. So the only way to get your piece of the pie was to take someone else's piece of the pie. Fortunately, in our world today, we've learned that with manufacture and trade, we can now make the pie bigger and bigger and bigger where there doesn't necessarily have to be an end to the pie and everyone can, can, uh, can get a piece of the pie. Uh, without necessarily having war. But I think anciently, the only way to really increase your piece of the pie was to go and take someone else's piece of the pie. That was the worldview then. And so it's it's interesting when you just, after you read the books, to see the different ideas and say, hmm, that's something to think about uh, and, and to view it from all different angles. So uh, I appreciate Ann bringing that up because that's certainly one thing you, that I've learned from all these different books is that there's a lot of different ways to look at whether something's good or bad. And really, I can't even judge any of it. Uh, it what happened happened, and I kind of have to accept it and, and try to do the best I can with the world I live in. Um, you know, if we have history as one of our 
categories for next year, I'm going to put up uh, 1493. We read 1491, a description of the Americas before Columbus. And 1493 starts with the Columbian exchange between Europe and the Americas. I mean, things like tomatoes, potatoes and stuff were American produce. And now you're thinking tomatoes, well, that's Italian. Well, not until after Columbus and potatoes, that's, you know, the potato famine in Ireland. And so that Col Columbian exchange. So I'm thinking, I'm very interested in reading 1493, a description of how the Americas were before and then, or in 1491 before, and then after in 1493, because in our culture, you know, there's the big narrative of the Americas and, you know, the Jews coming and populating a, a, a vacant land and stuff, which is, is, you know, apocryphal, but understanding what the Americas were like, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that would be um, something I would like to, to learn more about. And then, yeah, Landon, you're talking about, again, it gets back to, okay, how does the world work for me? You know, and what do I have control over? You know, my relationships, you know, I can vote, I can donate money, you know, with political things, but, you know, and, and as we were talking about, you know, China and Russia seem to be cozying up to each other. Well, they're both autocratic leadership and they're both trying to figure out how to keep their own power. And so I think right now it looks like a little cooperation there may be helpful to them, but then they'll probably turn on each other again and stuff. So yeah, I don't know, it's very interesting. I really like the book club in helping me understand better how the world works. So do we have any other comments or observations, things you liked in the book or things you found interesting. Um, I yeah. If we don't have any other comments, Rebecca, I'll turn, I'll turn the time over to Rebecca. Oh dear. Yes. We try not to use those phrases. So no, I think, I mean, I feel like um, we all just learned so much from the book and your presentation just helps synthesize everything so well. So I think that you've given us a lot to think about also going forward as we, we relate this to the past and the future, our present. So I say, Bruce, you did an amazing job of synthesizing that entire book. I'm going to clap for you because... You did an incredible job on that. And those slides were wonderful. And as I said, we put this out on audio. We put this out on our The Good Book Club um, YouTube channel. And I know that we're going to get a lot of interest in this because it's such a fascinating topic. And uh, people have heard Genghis Khan. What was that? Who was that? They don't really know. So we appreciate you taking so much time to go through it and making it accessible, I think, to all of us. Because, you know, sometimes reading longer books like that is difficult, but you definitely made it really accessible. So let's go to our final uh, set of slides here. And then for those of you that haven't attended before, we actually 
much like an LDS ward, kind of stay on and have a little mix and mingle at the end. If anybody would like to stay on and chat, we love that part. Just to touch uh, base once a month with our friends. So um, our next book is Braving the Wilderness, as I said before, by Brene Brown. Um, Rochelle could not be here today. I know she's finishing up her master's thesis, so she's a very busy girl. But she actually sent us a little video preview to get us all excited about our next book so if our tech works um i think landon is going to play that true belonging doesn't require you to change who you are it requires you to be who you are Brene brown for next month's book club we'll be looking at braving the wilderness by Brene brown we'll be looking at true belonging versus fitting in what does it mean to truly belong and how do you truly belong um, the theories posed in this book are kind of interesting and they're ones that will likely resonate with those of us who have left the church and are trying to figure out who we are and what does it mean to navigate this world without uh, the, the heavy hand that the church can oftentimes provide for its members. We'll also be looking at the most common arguments against Brene Brown's theories. This part's important to me because critical thinking. Um, not something I was so good at before, but now I tend to be skeptical about everything. So we'll be looking at the arguments against it so that we can have a better idea of what kind of weight that these theories should hold in our lives. Looking forward to it. See you next month. Oh, that's great. And you can tell from that video that Rochelle is incredible and this is going to be an amazing discussion. Now, I will point out um, that typically our book club meetings are always the second Sunday at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. You'll notice this is the third. We had to move it uh, because of what was it, Mother's Day or was that Eastern Mother's Day? We've moved around a little bit. So there is a shorter period of time to read this book. However, uh, this book is not that long and it's going to be a good quick read, unlike some of our books we've had recently. So I encourage everybody to go out and grab that. It's on Audible and this is going to be a wonderful discussion, discussion with Rochelle reading that. So that'll be great. Let's move to our next slide. Okay, we always go through very quickly at the end, other media connected to the book club that's on our radar. We have um, the Good Media Club, which is a Facebook group and also on Instagram, where we put uh, media that's out there relevant to uh, Post and Nuance Mormons. We'll kind of um, look for documentaries, things that are in the news, things like that, and just uh, put those up there if anybody's interested in joining. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, like I mentioned, we have the Good Book Club podcast. You can search that on any of your regular podcast formats, and you can listen to book club meetings that you have missed in the past. So a lot of good stuff there. And then we also have the Good Book Club YouTube channel where you can also dive into things that were missed um, if you weren't able to attend. If you search the Good Book Club for post-Mormons, it will come right up. If you just search the Good Book Club, you're going to get a lot of Christian <laughs> channels. We should have thought that through when we came up with the name. But it's really interesting to go back in time um, for a couple years and, and see what we've done in the Good Book Club. Great discussions there. Uh, we also have Mormonish podcasts. That is something that Landon and I run. And we interview a lot of you guys quite often because we have so many um, interesting book club members with interesting stories. So we hit current events and interviews with interesting people. Um, check it out. Uh, you can find that on YouTube or go to mormonishpodcast.org. Or also there's a Facebook page where we kind of all talk amongst ourselves and communicate. So that's a fun thing to 
to check out too if you're interested. Let's see. Um, if you're not a member of the book club, you attended today and you thought, hey, I want to come to more of these. These guys are interesting. Or if you thought, these guys are crazy. I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> no, but you can find us on Facebook. By That's our logo right there. You can connect there. That's where, you, where we do most of our talking amongst ourselves. If you're not on social media, you can just send an email to thegoodbookclub at mail.com and I'll write you right back and get you on our list. And then we'll send you links and information that way. We're also on Instagram. So come connect with us. We absolutely just love to talk to people about all these different topics and if you do send me an email check your spam because sometimes when I resupply for some reason it goes to spam so there it is and now we will officially say goodbye from the book club and as I mentioned we will remain on a few you know however long for a mix and mingle so we will sign off now from the book club <laughs>